this is Jenny Brappard. And this is Kevin Lauderdale. And we're here with In a Perfect Policy podcast, where we talk about ideas from science and other fields about how to make policy better. What would you have in your perfect policy wish list? That's the question we asked to a lot of early career students and professionals at the National Science Policy Network Symposium this last November. And we got a huge assortment of answers, which is really interesting. Some of them more science-related, some of them less science-related, but all of them fascinating perspectives. And in fact, didn't uh, we had one that came true, didn't it, in that yes. intermittent time? in the time since recording and editing. So stay tuned at the end of the podcast to hear about that one. Buckle up, buckaroos. The theme of this year's symposium was leveraging science and technology to benefit marginalized populations. To start us off is Michael talking about issues in education for indigenous communities. I'm Michael Belcor. I am a recent PhD graduate from the University of Wisconsin in biochemistry. And right now I'm a postdoc in a small uh, private sector company here in Madison, Wisconsin. What issues are you really concerned about and why? The lack of opportunity that members of the American Indian community have to really get into STEM fields as a career. Um, The Department of Education has recently proposed that half of all American Indian high school students don't have access to the math and science classes needed to even jump into STEM in college. So being a scientist is just kind of like a no-go for huge chunks of that community. How do you see ways to address that disparity? We have to acknowledge the fact that this is settled Ho-Chunk land. It's really a systemic problem. So it, there are no easy solutions to this at, point, at this point. Uh, frankly, it requires you know, the federal government starting to honor a lot of the treaties it has with American Indian nations to really try to improve you know, living conditions on their reservations and their tribal lands. Um, that's not going to be easy and it's not going to be cheap, but we really need to start from the ground up and just making sure that we are giving American Indians these opportunities. So it's just a lot of work, but it needs to be done. Moving into a different field, we had Katie talking to us about nuclear engineering and Daniel talking about nuclear weapons treaties. I'm a third-year PhD student here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in nuclear engineering. There's a lot of things in the nuclear energy space that are policy-related. So one of the things that I'm really excited about right now is um, clean energy portfolio standards. Um, These are similar to many states have implemented what's called a renewable portfolio standard, which in normal language means a state or a city at any level requiring some percentage of their energy to come from renewable sources. And I'm particularly interested in the version of that that is clean energy, which would include nuclear power um, and oftentimes things like carbon capture and storage. Um, So it's kind of a wider net of low carbon and clean energy sources. Um, And so those are things that are past um, policy, again, across all levels. Illinois and New York are two states that have done this already that are really exciting, and I hope to see more states um, implement these policies. Also, the future of nuclear reactors, building new, advanced, sometimes called Generation 4 reactors. Um, These are 
going to be partnerships in some way or receive some funding from the federal government. And so doing that requires some legislation. So there's a lot of work um, at the national level to support the future of nuclear power and advanced nuclear reactors. How would you address a lot of the fears people have about nuclear energy? Yeah, so I always approach it as a discussion. Um, I am not here to just be an authoritative source who just like shoves facts down people's throats. Um, I really want to talk to people individually and hear things they're concerned about and and have a discussion. Um, There are a lot of different things that come up in media or, um, you know, maybe historical conflations of nuclear weapons and nuclear power, which are are separate things. Um, And I really just like to talk through each of these things individually with people um, because I think a lot of the concerns people have um, are, are things that we can, we can manage as a society, as engineers, um, from a policy standpoint, from a lot of different angles. Um, so I always just approach it as not a one-size-fits-all, but as an individual, unique discussion with people. Hi there, my name is Daniel Puentes. I'm a graduate student in the Department of Physics and Astronomy over at Michigan State University, where I study experimental nuclear physics for my PhD. The main issue that motivates me is the proliferation of nuclear weapons in the global community. Over the last couple of years, we've seen the erosion of various nuclear arms control treaties and agreements, such as the JCPOA, also known as the Iran nuclear deal, also, the INF Treaty, which is short for the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty that we've just recently pulled out of this past summer. The next treaty that's in danger of expiration is actually what's known as New Start, which is short for the New Strategic Arms and Reduction Treaty, which is set to expire February 2021. It will be the first time since 1972 that there will exist zero limitations on the number of warheads deployed that the United States and the Russian Federation can have out in the field. So some can say that it's possible that the Cold War 2.0 is on its way. Oh, wow. That's a pretty serious issue. Okay, so in your ideal world, what would you like to see happen um, to change, you know, obviously not starting another Cold War? World nations need to begin communicating more. We need to, first of all, extend the New START up until 2026. It's really easy. Both the leaders of the Russian Federation and the United States, all they have to do is just agree upon the extension, and then it's done. Afterwards, during this time of extension, both countries should work together to produce another nuclear arms control agreement or a treaty that can show both parties' sides and commitments towards the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons and that nuclear weapons are only used to serve as a deterrent and not as a war-fighting strategy. So what happens when a treaty expires? Is it really hard to get it started again? In order for a new treaty to enter into force, there's a lot of work that needs to happen between both nations in the case of a bilateral treaty. 
you would for the United States, you would need at least a two thirds vote in the Senate of the United States, which in today's day is been pretty difficult considering a lot of different topics have been shot down before a vote can even take place on the Senate chamber. So right now, it would be in the United States' best interest to extend the treaty while it's easy to do so rather than trying to come up with a solution before it expires in 2021 because most likely the solution would not have been, will not be ratified by the Senate. The next three interviews with Vania, Noah, and Luz centered around similar topics of how healthcare and health policy impacts people and communities, but took very different perspectives. Uh, my name is Vania Lopez Ruiz. I went to undergrad at Colby College in Maine. I majored in chemistry with a concentration in biochemistry, and I have since joined a PhD program in cell biology of disease, or the pathology PhD home, uh, program at the University of Rochester. My interest in science has really mostly been human health driven, and so when I was a sophomore in undergrad, I did an internship with the Jackson Labs, and I worked with this woman named Carol Bolt, who's just amazing, and she ran something called the Avatar Program, which really, really simplified, essentially lines up cancer treatments for humans by scenographing human tumors into immunocompromised mice. Um, and so they do that so that they can sort of have a lineup of treatments that might eventually be able to be used on the actual human. And that sounds amazing, and I think that it will eventually help lots of people. But then you get into the issue of, well, who will this be available to? Mm -hmm. Because there is economic burden that's not equally shared among everyone, and so we work on these things that will become really, really great ways of treating diseases like cancer, but who are we ultimately treating, and why are we focusing on people that can afford it? And is there a way to standardize costs so that it's not so much driven towards people that can afford it, but to people that need it. So making sure that everyone has access, especially looking at the cost. Right. Yeah, that is definitely a very important issue. Is there anything in particular that you wish you could see happen? A way so that treatment is not seen in terms of the cost, but in terms of the people. Mm -hmm. So that we're looking at not a statistical quantity, but like an actual human story. My name's Noah. I'm a second-year master's student uh, studying cancer immunology at Roswell Park Cancer Center in Buffalo, New York. I've really become interested lately in using research, in using the cutting-edge knowledge that we have right now, and applying it to healthcare for patients, because I really believe that's what's going to give us the most benefit. You know, I love being on the bench and doing, you know, air quotes, cutting edge research. But, you know, the thing about the cutting edge is the impact is always 10, 15 years away. And when there's people sick across the street right now, I want to be in a position where I can create some real change and actually help them. Great. So the question we've been asking everyone today is, is there one issue that you really care about? What would you want to do about it? So if you can implement any policy or change. Ooh. Does it have to be realistic or? No. I would probably say um, repealing Citizens United and even going so far as to get rid of all corporate influence in politics. I just think the influence of uh, capital on our legislation, on our standards for what we do for our people has just been disastrous in the past 15, 20 years.
My name is Luz Cumba Garcia. I'm originally from Puerto Rico. I did my undergrad there. Um, I did my master's degree in Spain, in Granada, Spain, in immunology. And now I'm a, I'm a four-year PhD student at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, studying uh, immunology, but in the context of glioblastoma brain tumors. So right now, I'm part of the uh, American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology Advocacy Training Program, or ATP. And in order to complete the program, we need to um, choose uh, three advocacy events that we want to follow up. And uh, one of them is going to be vaccine disinformation in Minnesota. Um, I live in Rochester, Minnesota, and it's been reported in the scientific literature that there is a a, bit, a little bit of resistance, especially from the Somali community in Minnesota. Uh, so I got interested on in that, like what's happening, what's going on, and how can I help as a scientist, as an immunologist, right? So it's a, a topic very close to my heart. There is a deletion bill that hasn't been passed into a law, it's still, it's still in Senate, that is to, um, it's a deletion bill to just eliminate every um, exceptions to not vaccinate your kids. So I know other states already passed this bill, like New York, for example. Uh, it has not been passed in Minnesota. And yeah, just that brought my attention, like what's, what's happening. I'm not a person of imposing anything to anybody, right? So what are better ways, better routes to educate the, the population, right? Um, so I've been researching, uh, especially with the Somali community, what are some of the problems? So it looks like, apparently, I don't want to make any statements here, that it's just mistrust, lack of knowledge, and uh, it's maybe, it has a, a cultural relevance, basically. It doesn't have to be with the, with the religious part, at least for this community. So I'm interested in engaging with the leaders of the Somali community that, that I'm in that stage right now, engaging with leaders, uh, providing them with the resources and, and the, the knowledge, the scientific knowledge of um, what, what are the benefits of getting vaccinated, right? Um, and uh, just collaborate for, for the greater good of the community. So I'm, I'm, I'm on that. Um, I also have a couple of meetings scheduled with uh, members of the Department of Health in Minnesota to see how can we partner as scientists and politicians or people working in, the, in, the, in politics to make this happen. So I'm really passionate about that, uh, maybe because I'm an immunologist, so I think it's, uh, I believe in getting your kids vaccinated. We need to respect and be aware of the differences in culture and, you know, be an advocate, uh, mm -hmm. talking to communities and, and just uh, teaching them what we know about science. Great. Do you have any recommendations for your scientists also interested in this topic about how to approach these communities in a respectful way? Right, yes. So you need to be, that you mentioned something, you need to be very respectful, uh, be mindful and, and aware of the stigmas and sometimes uh, it's part of their culture. So you need to be respectful. Uh, like I said before, I don't like to impose anything. I'm just, I just want to be their friend, you know, and uh, just be available for them as a resource for anything, for any questions that they might have. Also, uh, it's there are some research studies out there that uh, saying that people from a specific cultures or background listen to people that are related to them in some sort of way, right? So um, that's why I'm partnering with leaders, I'm partnering with other Somali uh, scientists as well, because I think that would bring a, a backup for, for my message, for what I want to convey. Uh, also do your research, do your research because you need to come up with data 
that back up what you're saying. You cannot simply say, vaccinate your kids, uh, <laughs> otherwise they will die, you know, yeah. because that's not the way to go here. You need to show them a little bit of data, not too excessive because they are not scientists, so they're going to get bored, right? You need to, I actually am thinking about using uh, comics and cartoons and uh, uh, figures that basically explain what I want to say. Uh, they're not scientists, and doesn't mean that they're dumb or anything, but you need to talk in, in general terms so for everybody to understand what, what you want to say. Many of our participants were interested in evidence-based policies. Nemo and Ben were particularly interested in how they affect policies around food. Hi, my name is Grinimrit Sidhu, but you can call me Nemo. Um, a little bit about my background. I studied chemical engineering in undergrad at Penn. After that, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Liberia, West Africa, where I taught math and chemistry. Afterward, I was, I was actually evacuated due to Ebola, um, and I took some time working as a chemical engineer to fill the space that I had between my Peace Corps experience and grad school, which is to which I had deferred admission here at UW-Madison. Um, I was in the biophysics PhD program here, but I left with a master's after about three years when I realized that my passion was really with international development. So I'm an associate consultant at an organization called Global Knowledge Initiative. Um, most of what we do at Global Knowledge Initiative is we consult larger funding organizations such as USAID, World Bank, the Australian and, um, and British development agencies and so on, on how to more powerfully develop, implement, and monitor and evaluate development programs. I think that when it comes to developing policy to kind of like take this to the higher level, it's about understanding like where the information is, collecting the appropriate information, and actually like performing those activities so that you can have better policy. Um, I think oftentimes, as we all know, policy may not take into account like all of the appropriate data. So I think that Having scientists participate in policymaking processes is really important and critical, but we also need to acknowledge that like, we don't necessarily have all of the information or data out there. And I think that there are so many funding mechanisms that exist in the world, and how many funding mechanisms are actually getting people to collect the data so that we can develop the appropriate policies. Mm -hmm. So as like a broad general recommendation, I think that it would be really beneficial if governments had a pool of funding or some type of systematic support to make sure that whatever they're developing is actually like data driven. Are there any um, maybe like specific examples that come to mind of like where these innovations might work in one context but not another? So one of the things that I've looked at a little bit is post-harvest food loss. So from from the farm gate to the market what is happening to food, where is nutrition kind of like falling, falling off the truck, let's say, um, and why, why is that happening and what policies are in place to, to enable um, either innovations to take root um, or to just develop um, like systematic support, which is often usually for like for private businesses um, and entrepreneurship. With something so specific like post-harvest loss, countries often have like specific objectives that post-harvest loss ends up being integrated within. So for example, in India, 
one of the main things that they focused on was cold chain development. They developed um, like a cold chain, like national institution, like informing government body that's like fairly centralized and works with a variety of different government agencies as well as the private sector to make sure that the perf- the, the appropriate technologies are actually deployed. That's a model that works well in India because their main focus is moving food from one place that is very far from another place, first mile to the last mile. Whereas in Bangladesh, their emphasis was not so much on developing the technology and making sure that the technology was appropriate. They were more concerned about poverty. So how they were actually thinking about post-harvest loss was more what what type of like climate-sensitive, like, agriculture technologies and practices can we develop and they emphasized more building the capacity of farmers and people who are like closer to the first mile so the approaches can differ very widely because they need to be integrated into a set of agendas that actually fit into a national vision Mm -hmm. um and so I guess, like, to to go back to your specific question, which I think was mostly, like, how have policies... (laughs) How have policies, like, actually varied? Um, I think that each, like, each government or organization needs to make its own determination of what's important to it and then come to say, like, how have other organizations made decisions about policies based on this? Is that relevant to us or not? Because it might not necessarily be. My name is Ben Rush. I am a second-year PhD student here at UW-Madison. I'm in the Nutritional Sciences Department, and I look at muscle health throughout aging. If I had a magic wand, I would probably take on the whole concept of the current government situation not embracing science as evidence and making policy based on evidence. Uh, I think with a little bit of pushback against science right now, uh, we could make leaps and bounds in multiple different scientific areas if we could really use science as a tool to guide our policies and especially support the scientists to go forth and explore more. Are there any particular examples that come to mind? I'm very interested in like the supplemental nutrition assistance program. Um, and recently there was a decision to eliminate categorical status. So what do you mean by categorical status? So if people were eligible for a different category of assistance, so uh, temporary family assistance for the needy, I believe. Um, I think I messed up the acronym. Um, they might also be eligible for SNAP. We are having over 3 million people at risk of being kind of cut off from SNAP assistance. And then SNAP itself also gives eligibility for some families and people uh, to other programs. So people who might be eligible for SNAP are often eligible for WIC as well. So the Women, Infants, and Children program. So they're able to actually get you know additional supplementary food or nutrition or nutrition education counseling. Um, so that means not only do we jeopardize the people uh, who are on SNAP, but we might also be jeopardizing the people who are uh, on other programs because they're eligible for SNAP as well. Next up is Avital and Dylan, who both had really interesting perspectives on integrating scientists in the community. My name is Avital Percher, and I am the Director of Partnerships for the National Science Policy Network. If you had your druthers, if you had a magic wand, what change, what policy would you like to see implemented? What social effect would you see uh, altered? 
keeping my uh, NSPN hat on, I would say that for me, it is enabling the transition of expertise and training in the scientific method outside of academia. And so what policies would I be interested? I, some one, if you will, category of policies I'm interested in, the university policies and how they encourage students to participate both within their community as citizens as well as career options in bringing that skill set beyond the lab bench. And this could be involved in things such as internship programs. This would be about policy of encouraging students to take that internship programs beyond creating them. Um, how they take the tone of their voice to their community and really enabling a culture change, which I will steal from a conversation earlier, and saying is this is what, what in policies do you enact that really enable us to bring science to society in a more robust manner? My name is Dylan Verdon, and I'm a fifth-year neuroscience student at the Anschutz Medical Campus in Aurora, Colorado. So one thing that I'm really interested in is can we speak to policymakers, can we speak to community members, uh, and can we speak to our institutions and figure out a way to really leverage the energy that early career scientists have and make it easy, give them clear steps to actually integrate into their community or policy so that it's not such a, a shot in the dark and it's not something that they have to struggle through while they're figuring out, well, what lab am I going to join and what's my project? Um, and so one thing I'm really interested in is is how can we make at the at the government level early career scientists a more ready resource and really point their head in the direction that they can be useful rather than just putting them in a room and having them give a talk, for example, really figuring out where where can they be effective. Can you describe a specific example of how you see that? Sure. Um, so we recently held a science policy summit and we found out that uh, our state legislators in Colorado are paid about $40,000 a year and they have one staffer that's paid $14 an hour for a fraction of that year. And so that's obviously a huge problem when these legislators are trying to get into science or, or try to get scientific literature because they just don't really have those resources. Mm -hmm. um, at the same summit, we had 50 uh, early career scientists from across Colorado. They're all interested. They're all engaged. They don't offhand know what policies these legislators are interested in. So one thing that we're trying to work on is uh, make more opportunities for fellowships or even permanent positions within Colorado's state government for science policy advisors. Um, and we also want to help train early career scientists in how do you make a white paper very much like we did today. And I was really excited to see that that was something that, that people are getting trained in. Um, so I think a lot of it is, you know, training early career scientists in a way that is useful to legislators, but also figuring out if we can actually make funding for these individuals, because it, it really is uh, a lot of time and effort that these people are putting in. And we, if we want to value science policy and science communication, I think we need to figure out how to leverage them more effectively and, and compensate them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In our last interview, Edna shared some opinions about graduate students and taxes. So my name is Edna Chang, and I'm a fourth-year microbiology PhD student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. One issue that hits very close to home for me, and as well as a lot of other graduate students, um, undergraduates, trainees, or just um, 
trainees in general um, is the fact that uh, being a trainee in science is financially difficult in the sense that our stipend um, is not very high um, and we probably do not get paid as much as our education would suggest that we could. Um, And one burden that kind of adds on to that is the fact that depending on the source of funding that you receive um, and where that comes from, you might not be able to contribute to a retirement fund. So this most commonly happens when someone receives a fellowship because a fellowship is not considered earned income. And you can only contribute to a retirement fund um, based upon the earned income that you have for the year. Um, So if I'm on a fellowship for an entire year um, and it's not earned income, then I can't contribute anything to my retirement fund, um, which might not seem like a big deal right now. But, you know, what, 40, 50 years down the line when I'm ready to retire, that's going to leave a huge financial deficit in what I could have saved up in my retirement fund. Um, So in a perfect policy, I would just like the ability to contribute to my retirement fund when I am on a fellowship. Um, You know, I contribute to a retirement fund, uh, depending on what type of fund I contribute to. You know, taxes are still taken out normally. It's not really a burden to my PI or the university. Everything goes as normally. Um, I just would like the ability to start kind of thinking ahead and saving up for future me so that future me is appreciative of past me and our past slash hopefully current slash future government. So it turns out this issue that Edna is talking about, the fact that graduate students can't contribute their non-W-2 fellowship income to an individual retirement arrangement or IRA, uh, did come up in the legislature. It actually has come up since 2016, but never passed. Uh, But in 2019, at the very end of the year, uh, the Graduate Student Savings Act was passed as part of an omnibus spending bill, H.R. 1865, which means that in 2020, Ph.D. trainees on fellowships can finally contribute to their IRA. As far as I understand, maybe don't take your tax advice from this podcast, but pretty exciting. Things can change. Thank you all for listening to this episode of In a Perfect Policy. Tune in next time for more policies and get excited for the future. <laughs> <laughs>